This program has been approved for one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. This webcast has also been approved for ABIM Maintenance of Certification, MOC points, through the partnership between the ACCME and the ABIM. The following continuing medical education activity is the property of The Ohio State University. Duplication is prohibited by law. The Ohio State University is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, also known as ACCME. OSU Center for Continuing Medical Education designates this CME activity for a maximum of one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Each physician should claim only those credits that are actually spent on this CME activity. In keeping with the essential standards of the ACCME, planning committee members and participating faculty have been asked to disclose any relationship with commercial entities, discussion of commercial products, services, or unapproved off-label usage of commercial products or devices. Specific disclosure information can be obtained by contacting the Center for Continuing Medical Education at ccme.osu.edu. The information presented in this CME activity is meant for educational purposes only. Physicians' own judgment must remain central in the selection of the therapy options for their patients' specific medical conditions. The following is supported in part by the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. Attention Deficit Disorder in Adults. That's today's presentation with the following distinguished faculty from the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. And now, our medical editor and moderator, Dr. Jing Jing Mao. In 1902, famed British pediatrician Sir George Frederick Still described in a series of lectures an abnormal defect of moral control in children. While Dr. Still is more well known for describing Still's disease or Still's murmur, he was also credited with being the first to provide a clear description of what is today known as Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, or ADHD. The American Psychiatric Association didn't recognize ADHD in its, its, its first edition of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, or DSM. It did include something called Hyperkinetic Reaction of Childhood in the second edition, published in 1968. By the third edition, released 12 years later in 1980, the name had changed to Attention Deficit Disorder. A few years later, a revised edition of the DSM again changed the name now to what is known today as Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. Fast forward to the year 2000, when the fourth edition of DSM was published. This time, there were now three subtypes added to the ADHD diagnosis, inattentive type, hyperactive impulsive type, and combined type. ADHD has become more and more widely accepted, and its prevalence has been increasing over the past couple of decades. Now, parents report nearly 10% of their kids struggle, struggle with ADHD. Rates in adults are increasing as well, and untreated ADHD can have very serious negative consequences, including higher rates of motor vehicle accidents, substance abuse, employment troubles, relationship problems, and even suicide. So to help us better understand 
adult ADHD, and its treatment options, I have invited two of Ohio State University's psychiatric experts. Dr. Justin Bartirian is a clinical psychologist and assistant professor who specializes in diagnosing and treating ADHD and learning disorders. And Dr. Lily Spidier is a child and adolescent psychiatrist and assistant professor with clinical interests in ADHD and learning disabilities. Justin, Lily, welcome to MedNet. Thank you, Jingzi. Thank you, Jingzi. Perfect. Justin, you know, we, we, I think a lot of us think of ADHD as a childhood illness. What are some of the differences between ADHD in adults and in children? Absolutely. So um, ADHD is a disorder that begins in childhood, but it can uh, persist into adulthood. So a lot of times what we'll see in terms of adult ADHD is um, maybe a lessening of some hyperactivity symptoms. Uh, adults may describe it as more of an internal restlessness rather than um, kind of the hyperactivity that you might typically see in children. So you see more of the uh, inattention um, and maybe a little bit of a lessening of some of those symptoms for some, but not for all. Okay. And Lily, is ADHD something that kids grow out of or does it always persist into adulthood? Um, children with a diagnosis of ADHD may continue to experience um, symptoms in adolescence and adulthood and about a third up to half of them will continue to struggle with impairment uh, in their adult years. Mm -hmm. Okay, thanks Lily. Before we get started, please check out our new website at ccme.osu.edu. You can find all 120 of our webcasts there along with the slides. Also, if you have any questions or any feedback for us, we would like to hear from you. So you can use the Ask a Question feature on the bottom right-hand corner of our webcast player. Now let's learn about ADHD from our guests. Justin? Thank you so much. So um, I'm going to start uh, with just kind of a little bit of an overview of what I'm going to discuss today. So um, I'll uh, start with just kind of reviewing the DSM-5 uh, diagnostic criteria and then kind of moving into the importance of a thorough ADHD assessment and then the importance of an accurate diagnosis. Um, we'll talk a little bit about uh, some of the components um, that are part of a good evaluation and then some of the factors um, complicating diagnosis. So um, the first criterion for uh, being diagnosed with ADHD is to experience a persistent pattern of inattention and or hyperactivity and impulsivity that interferes with uh, functioning or development. So that's really one of the big key points is that there needs to be some sort of impairment and that we all can kind of exhibit maybe some of these symptoms here and there, but it's that impairment piece that really sets ADHD apart as a diagnosis. And that can be, uh, again, characterized by uh, six or more of the inattention symptoms in the DSM and or six or more of the hyperactivity and impulsivity symptoms. So the inattention symptoms uh, may include things like uh, difficulty with organization, losing things, uh, difficulty with task completion. Uh, some of the hyperactivity and impulsivity symptoms might include um, you know, um, restlessness, talking too much, being too loud in certain situations, intruding on others, um, those sorts of things. Um, so one of the important notes for um, those uh, that are older is that 
after 17, uh, about you only need five symptoms of the inattention and or the hyperactivity and impulsivity to be diagnosed with ADHD. So that uh, that diagnostic criteria kind of uh, changes a little bit. Um, and of course, uh, the symptoms of ADHD or the symptoms that we're seeing can't be due to any other kind of mental health uh, disorders. So um, one of the biggest criteria and one of the things I think that is most important in an ADHD evaluation is that several of those inattentive or hyperactive impulsive symptoms needed to be present prior to age 12. So essentially this is a developmental disorder. So um, if we see it in adulthood, we would expect that if it's ADHD in its uh, true form that we'd have also seen symptoms in childhood. And again, these symptoms need to be impairing in multiple domains. So it can't just be, you know, one domain, like maybe somebody's having trouble in school, but then socially and at home, they're doing okay. We need to see impairment in, in two domains. Um, and again, there's clear evidence that the symptoms interfere with or reduce the quality of social, academic, or occupational functioning. Um, and again, that's a, a key point. So when we're looking at that impairment, is that, is that person more impaired um, and substantially impaired compared to the typical average person? And then, of course, the symptoms don't uh, occur uh, as a, a result of another kind of mental health disorder like schizophrenia or psychotic disorders, um, which we'll talk a little bit more in, about in a few minutes. So there's three uh, types of ADHD, uh, subtypes of ADHD now. Um, this is actually still really confusing for patients. I'll have patients come in and say, I have ADD, not ADHD, um, which is the previous um, kind of uh, diagnostic classification. So now you can have combined presentation, which is uh, six uh, symptoms of both inattention and hyperactivity impulsivity you meet for, or the predominantly inattentive type, or the predominantly hyperactive or impulsive type. So. ADHD is something that is uh, tricky to diagnose because a lot of other things can look like ADHD. Um, so things like depression, for example, we'll see maybe a lack of motivation, not enjoying things, trouble getting going, maybe trouble with uh, tasks of daily living, staying organized, you know, taking showers, those sorts of things um, that can look a lot like ADHD sometimes. Same with anxiety, and this is uh, one of the biggest um, kind of diagnostic pieces that um, I often find is kind of parsing out what is anxiety and what might be ADHD. So with anxiety, you know, your mind is kind of in fight or flight mode in a way. You are, uh, and kind of, it makes it difficult to maybe focus on tasks. So if I'm really anxious about maybe completing my college coursework, um, I'm naturally going to avoid my college coursework because I don't like being anxious. Um, and so a lot of times people can kind of interpret that as an inattention issue when rather it's maybe more of an anxiety issue. Uh, similarly with um, things like borderline personality disorder, we'll see a lot of emotional impulsivity um, that can occur. Um, and that emotional impulsivity uh, is distinct from the type of uh, impulsivity that we'll typically see in individuals with ADHD. With that being said, there's a lot of overlap, uh, there's a lot of comorbidity between borderline personality disorder and ADHD um, due to that kind of underlying impulsivity construct. 
Um, learning disorders is another thing uh, that we want to be aware of. Um, so if I have a reading issue, um, when I sit down to read, I might not be able to pay attention to the text and I want to get up, you know, reading is very laborious for me, so I'm going to get up and do something else. Um, and so that can look like an inattention issue and really it's a reading issue. Um, insomnia, so trouble sleeping. So I'll have patients that will come in sometimes and are getting four hours, five hours of sleep a night. And most of us uh, would struggle um, with paying attention um, and focusing, especially during maybe uh, lectures that are a little bit more boring than others, um, you know, uh, when we're that tired. Um, also, uh, intellectual developmental disorders. So if someone has uh, a lower um, IQ, you know, some of these tasks just may be a bit more difficult. Um, and so it, it may look again like ADHD, but really it's an intellectual uh, developmental disorder. Um, one thing that I see a lot, uh, given that I do a lot of um, young adult ADHD evaluations, is early symptoms of psychosis and schizophrenia. Um, and so what we'll see is someone that may have not had problems before come in and they're having trouble with focusing and concentration and maybe they're also reporting some of the other kind of experiences and symptoms that we might see uh, or might be suggestive of a psychosis related disorder. Um, and so that's something to kind of be aware of, especially in uh, young adult patients who may be at a greater risk for developing that due to the family history. Um, so those are many of the things that can look a lot like ADHD. We also know that many people commonly experience symptoms of ADHD just in their daily life. I like to describe it to people as that it's a, you know, attention, just like most of everything, is a, is a spectrum. Some people are very good at focusing for long periods of time on boring tasks. That's how they're wired. And some people, you know, might be in the low average range. Um, what makes it a disorder is that there needs to be a significant level of impairment, um, that it's really getting in the way of daily functioning compared to the average typical person. Um, you know, one of the things that's been a common uh, uh, kind of uh, trend lately is a lot of people posting about um, ADHD on social media, specifically TikTok and things like that. And in one sense, it's great because, you know, there's a lot of um, discussion about ADHD and how it impacts people. Um, but a lot of the things that people with ADHD experience can also sound like common things uh, that we all kind of experience. And so again, having an assessment is really important to kind of determine, is that a significant impairment? Um, so an ADHD assessment is uh, important also because we know that there is a lot of, uh, there can be diversion of stimulant medications um, and we especially see this among uh, young adults on college campuses a lot. Um, you know, uh, a lot of times students will have the perception that they'll be able to focus longer and study more um, while taking a stimulant medication. Now, the research on that doesn't really necessarily support that. Again, if you think of ADHD as a spectrum, if I don't have much of an attention issue, um, increasing my attention a little bit more might not necessarily be that clinically impactful in terms of like my ability to focus and study. What we will see is sometimes students engaging in more kind of um, unhealthy behaviors like pulling multiple all-nighters and using stimulants to do that, um, or also maybe using it as a, a party drug or things like that. 
Um, we also know that there's several risks associated with stimulant medications. Um, you know, they can exacerbate, in some instances, symptoms of anxiety and depression, mood or psychosis symptoms. On the flip side, if there's an ADHD issue, sometimes stimulants can actually allow that individual to be able to better manage those symptoms of those disorders through behavioral techniques. So it's kind of a double, uh, two sides of, of a coin there. Um, we also know that there's some abuse potential for stimulant medications. When they're taken as prescribed uh, by, the, by the physician or the psychiatrist, we know that that uh, potential is low, but it's, it's still there. And it's when people start um, being more creative with how they're going to take the medication or their dose uh, that we can see more issues there. Um, another important reason to do a psychological assessment is uncovering comorbid disorders that will inform treatment approach. So if someone has pretty notable anxiety, depression, and ADHD, that's going to factor into how um, we might approach and treat that person. So it's very important that we uh, diagnose ADHD, though, and that we don't shy away from it. Um, uh, as was mentioned earlier, we know that individuals with ADHD tend to have lower grades in achievement. Um, uh, we'll see uh, occupational and economic functioning issues, so job loss, um, trouble at work, um, uh, kind of lower career aspirations or being financially dependent on parents. Um, oftentimes you can get this cycle between like um, trying and then feeling hopeless, like, you know, I've, I've got this job, I can do well with this, um, and then making some mistakes, um, getting in trouble with the boss, and then kind of that feeding into this sense of maybe being incompetent, which then can lead to avoidance behaviors and then compounding the problem. Um, and that kind of ties into this idea of mental health symptoms. So we see lots of times that individuals with ADHD will have lower self-esteem, feelings of being incompetent and unable to, to meet their goals. Um, we know that physical health is affected. Um, uh, some of the work uh, by Russell Barkley recently is, has identified that people with ADHD have approximately a 10-year lower life expectancy, um, which was um, shocking to me when I uh, saw that research for the first time. Um, you know, and when you think about it, with the increased uh, risk-taking behaviors um, and increases in um, kind of uh, lack of maybe self-care, going to regular doctor's appointments, uh, prevention-type issues, it, that, act, that statistic begins to make more sense. Um, we see uh, increased substance use uh, in individuals with, with ADHD, potential antisocial behavior, some more conduct-type problems. And then we also can see uh, more car accidents and license suspensions um, as well. So again, diagnosing this is important, um, but challenging. Um, so there's several components of uh, an ADHD evaluation. So, um, and the first component is to do a thorough review of mental health symptoms. So we wanna see what symptoms of various disorders are you experiencing? 
And then we also want to review current stressors. So sometimes people will come in and they have maybe a lot going on, and this is more of a new phenomenon for them. So maybe they're, um, you know, I work a lot with college students. So maybe you'll see someone who's taking 18, 19 credit hours and um, also, um, you know, working a full-time job. And, and so there's a lot of stressors that might be going on that might be leading to difficulties with focus and concentration. We want to gather information regarding childhood. So this is really the most important part of that ADHD evaluation, again, because ADHD is a lifelong disorder. So, you know, as a kid, did we see impairment in school? You know, what did teachers say about, about you when you were a kid? Um, what did your report cards say about you when you were a kid? Did you have trouble socially? Were you, uh, did you interrupt others or did maybe experience, did you experience some rejection because you had trouble paying attention to others' uh, social cues or maybe you were too focused and we see this with kids with ADHD, they can hyper-focus on things that are very interesting to them. Trauma history is another big one uh, to discuss. Um, we know that kids that have experienced traumatic events or a lot of stress at home naturally may have trouble with focus and concentration giving those stressors. And so kind of understanding uh, maybe that trauma component within the lifespan of that individual will come and kind of give you a better idea of what might be ADHD or might be trauma-related symptoms. And we also want to know family history of mental health related issues. So kind of going back to the point about schizophrenia and psychosis that I talked about before, you know, if there's more risk factors for that in someone's family, you know, we might want to take a, a closer look in terms of is what that person is experiencing right now, is that associated with maybe those disorders? Um, same with like mood disorders, um, such as bipolar disorder. Um, and also ADHD is very highly heritable. Um, so we would expect that if the patient that we're meeting with at the moment has ADHD, that someone in their family also likely has had ADHD at some, uh, showed symptoms. So uh, components of a good ADHD evaluation include um, self-report and observer ratings, uh, if possible, of ADHD symptoms, both as a child and as an adult. Um, so we, it's, if possible, it's great to be able to get parent ratings of someone, even if they're uh, in adulthood, um, if they're willing to allow you to do that. Because it, it then uh, adds to the certainty that they both saw, that they saw that they had ADHD symptoms as a kid and that somebody else did. Um, Another thing that can sometimes fact, uh, complicate diagnoses is that we know, especially for uh, men with ADHD, they tend to not um, they tend to not realize the severity of their symptoms and the impairment of their symptoms until they're, th in th they're until they're in their 30s. Um, so a lot of times, what you'll see is a, a kind of minimizing of childhood symptoms. Um, we also want to establish impairment relative to the average person. So again, are you functioning significantly more impaired compared to somebody else? Um, and that significant component is, is very important. Um, another good component of an ADHD evaluation is obtaining corroborating uh, evidence of symptoms. So um, that might include interviews with a family member, uh, if the patient is willing, uh, academic records. So when I do my ADHD evaluations, I'll have patients bring in, you know, transcripts 
Um, sometimes if I'm lucky, uh, they will have saved uh, or their parents will have saved childhood uh, report cards and things like that that I can look at and look at kind of that um, observer related data and then, you know, work performance improvement plans or has someone lost a job or those sorts of things. Um, the next uh, important component is ruling out other mental health disorders that might be causing symptoms, such as anxiety and depression and other relevant issues, and then ruling out uh, developmental intellectual disorder and specific learning disorders. And that can be done through um, you know, uh, cognitive ability tests or specific uh, learning disorder tests and things like that. So there are several factors that complicate accurate diagnosis for ADHD. Um, one of those things can be severe anxiety and or depression. So if someone comes in to be evaluated with ADHD and they're very anxious and depressed to the point that it's almost a crisis, it can be really difficult to kind of assess, you know, what are the impairments that we're seeing because of the anxiety and the depression? And what are the impairments that we're seeing due to a potential underlying um, attention disorder? Um, with these uh, patients, sometimes it can be helpful to uh, put, uh, work on treating that anxiety and depression first, so then we can get a better understanding of where those attention symptoms are once some of those anxiety and uh, depression symptoms have resolved. Um, Another uh, factor complicating accurate diagnosis can be active PTSD symptoms. So again, um, those symptoms can look a lot like ADHD. So treatment uh, before we do that ADHD evaluation can sometimes be helpful. Um, regular marijuana and substance use is another thing that can complicate um, uh, an accurate diagnosis, um, given that those substances can impact executive functioning both while uh, that person is taking the substance and, and after. And then uh, poor sleep. So uh, if someone's coming in for an evaluation and they're only getting you know, four or five, six hours of sleep a night, um, it's really, again, difficult to figure out what is the attention issue and what might be more of a sleep issue. Now, the tricky thing is a lot of these things can be exacerbated by ADHD. So we know that people with ADHD tend to have more insomnia and difficulty sleeping um, because they have more trouble going to bed and stopping what they're doing. Or, you know, same as we discussed before with the anxiety and the depression. Um, and so uh, that becomes the tricky treatment component. But sometimes focusing on some of these things a little bit ahead of time can give us a little bit more data to then um, accurately diagnose the, uh, the attention issue. Okay. Perfect. Thank you, Justin. ADHD, um, it, I mean, it, it can be quite difficult to tease out, it seems. So it's very, really helpful to hear um, your approach to it. Uh, now, you know, as you had alluded, alluded to, ADHD is a huge hot topic in social media. So are we underdiagnosing ADHD or are we overdiagnosing it? Is it appropriate for primary care doctors to be diagnosing it at just one visit or should we really be sending patients to psychologists for that more comprehensive evaluation? Absolutely. I think the underdiagnosis, overdiagnosis question is kind of the tale of as old as time when it comes to ADHD. Um, so I think that um, there was, uh, you know, I think there's some underdiagnosis and maybe some specific populations, um, especially, you know, we'll see in my practice when I work with adults, I tend to see more women than I see uh, men. And that's just due to um, sometimes how that ADHD, those ADHD symptoms can present. 
Um, but in terms of the overdiagnosis component, you know, uh, Keith Connors, who was a, a, a major ADHD uh, researcher, um, before he uh, passed away, uh, wrote um, about some of his concerns about what ADHD diagnosis has become. Um, and some of those concerns is that it's become a disorder that's uh, used to describe kind of just relatively non impairing attention issues and not these major impairing issues. And so I think when we think about ADHD, the important thing to think about is like, is this a significantly impairing um, problem for this individual? Mm -hmm. Okay, that's helpful. Thanks, Justin. And now to discuss how to treat ADHD is Dr. Spedier. Lily? Thank you, Jing Jing. As we now know well, um, ADHD is no longer just a childhood disorder, and the symptoms continue into adulthood in a, a good percentage of patients. Uh, the estimated prevalence of adult ADHD is higher for males uh, versus females, and um, effective treatment is possible with the goal, the overarching goal of improving uh, the patient's quality of life. And oftentimes that is achieved by um, a significant improvement in the patient's ability to organize their lives, to follow through with their goals, to regulate their emotions and interpersonal interactions, uh, contain their substance use, uh, etc. All leading to improved self-esteem, better self-confidence, and just overall uh, improvement uh, in their life experience. I think it will help to review a little bit the history of development of uh, the medications prescribed these days to treat uh, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder in patients of all ages. And it all started with the discovery um, a long time ago that certain naturally occurring substances uh, have performance enhancing properties. Ephedrine is one of these plant-derived substances that was used in China for its stimulant properties more than 5,000 years ago. These um, chemicals have um, properties similar to those of the endogenous agonists of the sympathetic nervous system called catecholamines, epinephrine or adrenaline or epinephrine or noradrenaline, dopamine. Uh, due to the scarcity of these naturally occurring chemicals, chemists everywhere worked really hard at understanding these chemicals and synthesizing them in their laboratories. In 1885, uh, a Japanese chemist by the name of Nagai Nagayoshi was able to isolate ephedrine from ephedra vulgaris and later developed a method uh, to synthesize it in the laboratory. Later, he was also able to synthesize methamphetamine from ephedrine. In Germany in 1887, a Romanian chemist by the name of Lazar Edelanu synthesized amphetamine, which is also a chemical related to ephedrine, and named it phenyl isopropylamine. In the United States, uh, the American chemist Gordon Ellis was able to independently resynthesize uh, amphetamine in 1927 and described its sympathetic properties. Later, he prepared uh, amphetamine sulfate, 
and sold the patent rights to a company, Smith Klein French, which quickly started marketing amphetamine as a non-addicted substitute for ephedrine in several products such as benzedrine pills and inhalers, dexedrine pills, dexamil tablets. Soon, benzedrine sulfate was prescribed everywhere to treat a wide variety of medical conditions. And uh, in 1937, the American pediatrician, Dr. Charles Bradley, um, administered benzedrine to uh, treat headaches in hospitalized children at his hospital. He quickly noticed that not only did benzedrine help the headaches, but also significantly improvement some of the children's attention, concentration, and academic performance. And since then, most of the research and development of ADHD medications um, has been based in these findings. Uh, in terms of pharmacological treatment, the first line of treatment um, are a group of drugs with sympathomimetic properties that are related to ephedrine and that are called stimulants. Their effectiveness in reducing the core symptoms of ADHD, including distractibility, impulsivity, hyperactivity, has been demonstrated by numerous studies over the past few decades. Stimulants actively increase the metabolic activity in the prefrontal uh, cortex and also the levels of norepinephrine and dopamine in areas of the brain important for executive function. There are two groups, uh, methylphenidate-based and amphetamine-based. Both um, act similarly by inhibiting the norepinephrine and dopamine reuptake with some subtle differences between the products in the balance of dopamine and norepinephrine. Um, when, uh, in terms of the marketed products, uh, there are many uh, that have been developed over the past few decades. They are short-acting and extended-release products. They, um, the extended-release products have various um, systems of delivery of the active drug. Um, most products, um, are administered orally as tablets, caplets, capsules, spansules, sprinkles, liquids. Uh, there are two uh, transdermal patches, one methylphenidate patch and one amphetamine patch. In terms of uh, side effect profile, uh, all stimulants have co a common profile. Um, some common side effects include appetite suppression, insomnia, gastrointestinal upset, headaches, they all may induce new onset tics or worsening of pre-existing uh, pre tics in patients with uh, tic conditions. They also may worsen certain psychiatric symptoms in patients with pre-existing, um, other pre-existing psychiatric diagnosis, depression, anxiety, mood lability, psychosis. Um, they all can um, induce in some patients uh, stimulant rebound effect, which is a return in symptoms, sometimes with increased intensity uh, in the evening, once the medication wears off. Uh, it's important to remember that stimulants interact with the cytochrome P450 enzymes, and they may interfere with the effectiveness of uh, certain um, drugs, including certain antihypertensive drugs, um, anticoagulants, anticonvulsants, uh, phenylbutazone, tricyclic drugs such as imipramine, clomipramine, dazipramine. It is also important to remember 
that um, they interact with monoamine oxidase inhibitors and um, they uh, they must be uh, and monoamine um, oxidase inhibitors must be stopped for at least 14 days before starting a stimulant due to a significant risk for dangerously high blood pressure Speaking of blood pressure, stimulants do have sympathomimetic properties and therefore they may increase blood pressure and heart rate. They must be used cautiously in patients with a history of hypertension or other cardiovascular risk factors. In fact, in 2006, an FDA panel recommended that the potential cardiovascular risks of stimulant medications be included in a black box warning on the medications. So when considering uh, prescribing stimulants in patients with adult ADHD, it's important to start with a comprehensive medical workup and definitely screen for hypertension and other cardiac risk factors. It is also important to remember that stimulants may lower the convulsive threshold in patients with a prior history of seizures, um, in patients with prior EEG abnormalities, but no history of actual seizures, and rarely even in patients without a history of seizures and no prior EEG evidence of seizures. The recommendation is for stimulants to be discontinued in patients who experience a seizure during treatment. The prescri uh, prescribing stimulants in Pregnant patients also um, can be difficult. It is recommended to prescribe only in those patients where benefit significantly outweighs risk. Even though there have uh, been no adequate and well-controlled studies in humans, uh, animal studies have shown adverse effects on the fetus. And uh, prema premature delivery and low birth weight um, infants have been reported in amphetamine-dependent mothers. Stimulants are excreted in breast milk, so breastfed infants should be monitored closely for adverse reactions, including agitation, insomnia, anorexia, reduced weight gain, long-term neurodevelopmental effects on infants uh, from CNS stimulant exposure are not known. There have uh, not been such studies. But uh, some authorities actually advise against maternal use during breastfeeding for safety reasons. Clinicians um, can use the U.S. Pregnancy Registry that monitors pregnancy outcomes in women exposed to psychostimulants during pregnancy. It can be accessed online or by phone. Um, it is also um, important to be aware that stimulants are ad addictive drugs. The Drug Enforcement Agency categorizes stimulants as Schedule II non-narcotic drugs, substance or chemicals with a high potential for abuse, and with use potentially leading to severe psychological or physical dependence. Um, stimulants come with a warning regarding their addictive potential, and when taken together with alcohol, uh, they have a risk of uh, increase in um, side effects including cardiovascular side effects because alcohol increases the blood levels of certain stimulants. This, um, an example of uh, such a boxed warning uh, reads for Adderall extended release uh, that uh, CNS stimulants, including Adderall extended release, other amphetamine-containing products, and methylphenidate, 
have a high potential for abuse and dependence. And uh, clinicians must assess the risk of abuse prior to prescribing and then monitor for signs of abuse and dependence while um, patients uh, are uh, treated with stimulants. This is another box warning for methylphenidate that again warns of the risks of um, use in patients with a history of substance use or use con uh, concomitant with alcohol. The next few slides uh, list the most commonly prescribed um, stimulants. They are methylphenidate-based products um, that come, again, as tablets, patch, powder for oral suspension, chewable tablets, etc. Dexmethylphenidate products, including focalin, focalin extended release, and uh, more recently, Asteris, which combines dexmethylphenidate with its prodrug, serdexmethylphenidate. Amphetamine products, amphetamine dextroamphetamine products, dextroamphetamine only products. Least dexamphetamine, Vivans, and the one methamphetamine product, the Zoxin. Uh, there is a group of patients who may not tolerate stimulants or in whom um, stimulants may be uh, contraindicated because of other medical conditions or other psychiatric conditions. In these patients, um, one can uh, consider non-stimulant medications. They may uh, not necessarily treat uh, symptoms quite as robustly as stimulants, but uh, they can be of great benefit in patients who, for whatever reason, cannot take stimulants or as adjuncts to stimulants um, to treat um, severe ADHD. Research shows that these medications also increase dopamine and noradrenergic neurotransmission in the frontal lobes and other brain regions involved in sustaining attention, regulating motor activity and emotion, etc. Uh, many of these non-stimulant medications are used off-label. There are several who are FDA approved uh, for the treatment of ADHD though. Most antidepressants, as we know, have a box warning regarding the risk of suicide in patients younger than 24 years of age. So clinicians must be aware of that when uh, prescribing antidepressants uh, for treating ADHD symptoms. This is an example of such a boxed warning, uh, emphasizing that um, antidepressants increase the risk of suicidal thoughts and behavior in children, adolescents, and young adults in short-term trials. Uh, these trials did not show an increase in the risk of suicidal thoughts and behavior with antidepressant use in subjects over age 24. And actually, there was a reduction in risk with antidepressant use in subjects age 65 and older. Uh, of course, depression and certain other psychiatric disorders are themselves associated with increases in the risk of suicide. And, uh, Patients of all ages who are started on antidepressant therapy for any reason 
uh, should be monitored appropriately and observed closely for clinical worsening, suicidality, or unusual changes in behavior. And of course, families and caregivers should be advised of the need for close observation and communication with the prescriber. Uh, the first group of non-stimulant medications um, includes alpha-2 adrenergic receptor agonists, initially developed uh, to treat high blood pressure. They include guanfacine hydrochloride and clonidine hydrochloride. Um, both come in immediate release forms and extended release forms. The extended release forms for both are FDA approved for the treatment of ADHD symptoms. However, the immediate release forms are off-label use, even though as effective as the extended release. Guanfacine was approved by the FDA for the treatment of ADHD in 2009. It seems to be more potent at postsynaptic receptors. And of course, um, it strengthened the prefrontal cortex network connections, uh, enhancing the prefrontal cortical regulation of attention and impulse control. Clonidine has the same mechanism of action, but seems to be more potent at the presynaptic receptors and tends to stimulate all three subtypes of adrenergic alpha-2 receptors. Atomoxetine, uh, Certera, was approved by the FDA in 2002. It is a selective norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor. It increases uh, noradrenaline and dopamine specifically within the prefrontal cortex, but not in other areas such as nucleus accumbens or striatum, and therefore um, poses a significantly less risk of abuse, which is the limiting factor in the use of stimulant medications. Wellbutrin, bupropion hydrochloride, also known as wellbutrin, is a dopamine norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor uh, that has been studied in specifically for treating uh, symptoms of ADHD. It can be effective in a certain subgroup of patients. However, um, patients must be monitored uh, closely for the risk of seizures. Serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors such as duloxetine, uh, and velafaxin have also been found helpful in some patients uh, and they are used off-label. Uh, moving on to serotonin norepinephrine modulating agents, we have veloxazine, which is actually an FDA-approved medication. It was approved in 2021 um, and is marketed uh, as Kelbri. Vilazodone and vortioxetine are used off-label. Um, sometimes, um, and also can be helpful in certain patients. The tricyclics, the zipramine, imipramine, and nortriptyline have been studied uh, somewhat, um, specifically for the treatment of attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Their use is off-label. Wakefulness-promoting agents such as modafinil and armodafinil also um, are weak inhibitors of dopamine reuptake in the prefrontal cortex and may also increase the concentration of norepinephrine and serotonin in the prefrontal cortex and hypothalamus, possibly as an indirect effect of increased extracellular dopamine. Um, 
and can be effective uh, in certain patients. However, it is important to monitor their uh, administration because uh, some patients are at risk of developing a serious rash requiring hospitalization and discontinuation of treatment. Over time, a lot of the research has also been dedicated to finding complementary therapies for attention deficit hyperactive disorder uh, for children and adults. Studies have produced mixed results, but there is a definite subgroup of patients, both children and adults, who may benefit from these uh, interventions. So they're worth mentioning. They may include supplementation with multivitamins and minerals, such as vitamin D, iron, zinc, magnesium, omega fatty acids, broad spectrum micronutrients, daily essential nutrients, Empower, Brillia, diet modifications, including gluten-free, sugar-free diets, and diets free of artificial food coloring have been studied quite extensively the evidence is non-conclusive, non but shows that a certain group of patients did benefit from this dietary modification. So again, they're, they're worth trying. A big part of the treatment for attention deficit hyperactive disorder in children and adults consists of psychotherapies. They address the negative cognitive emotional and behavioral aspects of living with attention deficit hyperactive disorder. They can help patients improve motivation, decrease perfectionism and procrastination, strengthen self-esteem, self-confidence, develop effective emotional regulation and interpersonal skills. Um, some psychotherapies that have been studied and found beneficial for patients with adult ADHD include cognitive behavior therapy, dialectical behavior therapy, mindfulness-based uh, cognitive therapy, certain types of brain training protocols, such as cognitive remediation rehabilitation, study skills training, self-monitoring skills training, neurofeedback, even video game brain training. Um, Achille Interactive developed uh, Endeavor RX, which was um, FDA approved in June 2020 and requires a prescription to be downloaded from the company's website. Yoga and regular physical exercise have also been studied. There is a small uh, group of studies that have shown that when practiced regularly and consistently, both regular physical exercise and yoga may um, elevate the release of frontostriatal dopamine and norepinephrine and lead to improved performance uh, on various executive function tasks. And again, worth pursuing, worth um, integrating in a healthy lifestyle. Perfect. Wow. Thank you, Lily. It's so good to hear there are so many different options that patients can choose from, including a lot of non-medication treatment options. And, you know, thank you for going over the history because I think it's always really interesting to hear that and even to hear that a lot of the treatment that we now use were developed even way before the diagnosis was even described. So speaking of treatment, you know, I, I see a lot of patients seeking out treatment with medical marijuana. It's getting more and more popular. And I know you guys had mentioned that uh, medical marijuana or ma marijuana in general can impair executive function. So would THC use be a contraindication to treatment or stimulant medications? 
Um, I advise my patients that use of THC may impair further executive function and may interfere with treatment. Uh, THC tends to accumulate in the body, including the brain, and uh, interfere with uh, those pathways that um, are involved in um, supporting um, all kinds of executive functions. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, Justin, if a patient doesn't quite have the time or the resources to do therapy or neurofeedback or some of those other, other treatment modalities, are there apps or self-help books that you can recommend or that, that we as primary care doctors can recommend? Absolutely. So um, what I often recommend is um, Taking Charge of Adult ADHD by Russell Barkley. Um, it's a self-help book um, that has uh, lots of good strategies in terms of how to structure your environment, um, how to manage symptoms, and essentially um, how to minimize that impairment caused by ADHD. Perfect. I am writing that down. And then speaking of structuring your environment, you know, I know kids can get things like individualized education plans to help them be more successful at school. But what about adults? What kind of accommodations can be asked for for an adult in a workplace, for example? Absolutely. So I, it often uh, can depend on the workplace. Um, but, you know, one of the things that I really work on with my p patients is, you know, really finding an environment that fits well um, with how they function. So we know that lots of times uh, individuals with ADHD might function better in more structured environments where there's uh, maybe more kind of direction in terms of deadlines and things like that, as, a as opposed to maybe some more unstructured environments where um, kind of it's up to that individual to figure out how to structure that time. Okay. And Lily, can you still continue stimulants indefinitely in adults? You know, as people are aging and they're developing chronic conditions like high blood pressure or cardiac disease, is that when you would stop the stimulant or can you still continue them depending on how well controlled the chronic illness is? It is uh, definitely worth um, trying to, to find ways to um, compensate for these cardiovascular side effects. And it's important to work closely with the physicians managing the other medical conditions. Sometimes that may not be possible. And that's when we would need to consider um, non-stimulant uh, options that uh, have um, fewer uh, cardiovascular side effects or even uh, recommend uh, uh, using mostly non-pharmacological interventions mm -hmm. and uh, including lifestyle uh, changes, even job changes, mm -hmm. other accommodations that may help patients um, overcome or work around the impairment um, mm -hmm. uh, caused by their symptoms. Got it. And then speaking of stimulants, is that something you typically recommend patients take daily, even when they're not at work, for example, or can they just use it as needed? The good thing about stimulants is that they can be used as needed, and patients can take the, their, the, the stimulant during the days when they know. They're gonna be required to sustain uh, mental effort for long periods of time, and not take the stimulant when they have relaxed days and really they don't put that much pressure on their executive system. Mm -hmm. Is there a benefit one way or the other? For example, is there any advantage to taking it on a daily basis? Uh, it depends on the severity of symptoms. For patients with moderately severe to severe impairment in, uh, related to their ADHD symptoms, 
it makes a big difference um, and it's recommended to take the stimulants daily because it's not only the, the more um, attention intensive tasks that mm -hmm. are impaired, but it's everyday functioning mm -hmm. that's uh, affected by untreated symptoms. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like driving, maybe. Driving would be a big one, yes. Uh -huh. Okay. And Justin, I'm seeing you know a lot of direct-to-consumer marketed websites where people can get a quick evaluation for ADHD. And I'm sure that's a very attractive option. I mean, it can take months to get in with a good psychologist. So um, what do you think about these online evaluations? Are they pretty valid or do you typically recommend against them? That's a great question. So, you know, it's, it's hard to know exactly um, the components that are going into all of those evaluations. Um, you know, I've heard that some of those uh, types of uh, evaluations, those online evaluations, are really kind of just symptom checklists, um, just kind of going through, like, do you experience, you know, the, the nine inattention symptoms and the nine hyperactivity impulsive symptoms, and then kind of diagnosing from there. You know, mm -hmm. as we discussed, there's kind of a lot more that kind of goes into um, an accurate ADHD diagnosis. So, you know, I think um, ways to expand care and get people more access to care is really important you know and I think as long as those um, those forms of doing that include all those important components then I think that's great but um, <laughs> if they don't then they can be problematic okay is there an easy way to tell if it does or not um, not that I'm aware of um, I've you know I've heard uh, feedback from uh, some former patients or some patients that have done various of these so I know a little bit about different ones but it's hard to know for sure what each one is going to do. Sure. Yeah. Thanks Justin. We're going to finish up today's program with a final key point from each presenter. Justin? Yeah. You know, when I think of um, ADHD evaluation, um, I think that a lot of times uh, providers may shy away from making the diagnosis or pursuing a diagnosis because of because it is so complicated um, and that, you know, there can be a lot of comorbid factors. Um, but again, there can be a lot of um, downsides to not pursuing that ADHD diagnosis in terms of a lot of those long-term negative effects to both physical and mental health. And so I think the, the most important thing to do is when someone's reporting an ADHD issue to um, you know, start that um, ADHD assessment uh, process of whatever that process may be at where you practice. Perfect, and Lily? Yeah, so it's important to then be aware that um, ADHD is, again, not a childhood diagnosis anymore, and that treatment is not only for children anymore, that uh, there is effective treatment available for adults, and um, the benefits of treatment um, are actually very significant and lead to significant improvement in the quality of life. Thank you so much, and thank you for joining us today. For our audience, you can find CME and ABIM MOC information on our website at ccme.osu.edu. If you're looking for something to listen to on your morning commute, our programs are available by podcast under MedNet 21 CME on your podcast player. Next week, Dr. Benjamin O'Donnell will be here to discuss medical therapies for obesity. That's all for today. Thank you for tuning in and farewell until next time.